Well, good morning. It's always a privilege to be in the pulpit. I enjoy the opportunity. I encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're going to just be taking a one-week break from our series in Ephesians. We're going to look at just a few verses here in Philippians. Uh, Paul wrote both Ephesians and Philippians at the same time and under the same circumstance. He was a prisoner. He was a prisoner in Rome. He's awaiting a trial. You know, he's... I wish I was probably a little more like Paul instead of being down on his luck or discouraged or complaining or looking for a way out or begging for some visitors. He takes the opportunity, realizes, well, maybe this is where God has placed me. And he takes that knowledge and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write some letters to some people that he valued most. And in this case, it's his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, Paul had planted the church at Philippi during his second missionary journey. And so he's sitting here in Rome and he's thinking back to these people in this church that he has spent uh, time with and encouraged with the gospel. I'm just going to run through the first couple verses here of Philippians to give you the context a little bit about how Paul felt about the people of the church in Philippi. He says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. These verses kind of give us a context, a better idea of who Paul is writing to and and gives us a sense of the next couple verses, because the verses we're going to look at this morning, verses 9 through 11, is Paul's prayer for these people. But I think it's important that we understand his relationship to them, right? This was a group of people that he knew, who he loved deeply, who were believers in Christ. And so as we look at these verses this morning, I wanted to pretend, because I think we can, that Paul was addressing us. As he was addressing believers in his time, we can take this text and we can apply it to us as believers. And so that's how we're going to walk through the text this morning, as if Paul is here writing this prayer for us. So this is what he says. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with a fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, Paul's prayer culminates where the Westminster Shore Catechism begins. The the first question in the catechism is, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end, the answer is, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Many of you may be familiar with that concept, and as we teach our children and in whatever we do, I think why the Westminster Catechism starts with the end in mind is we have to know where we're going. And so 
while we don't hold to all the things of the catechism here, uh, we do teach scripture and we do teach that our chief end, our main purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And this is what Paul is saying here in Philippians, that it'd be my prayer for you when it's all said and done is to the glory and praise of God. And I think that's important because that kind of sets the context for the rest of of these verses. And what I want to speak on today, and I see in these verses here, is a pursuit of excellence. And I believe the pursuit is of excellence because God is excellent. And if we're trying to pursue God, if our aim is to bring glory and praise to God, then it's also going to include this idea of excellence. So before we go on and look and analyze this text, I just want to kind of explain what I mean by excellence. Because there's kind of a worldly idea of excellence and maybe what I would call a biblical view of excellence. Biblical excellence is not about being perfect. Biblical excellence isn't about being the best or even better than the person next to you. I would say biblical excellence is about the pursuit of excellence. Pursuing excellence is less about the destination and more about the direction. It's more about the process and less about the product. So while we're on this earth, we're looking to the end. We're looking to Christ. We're looking to God who is perfect, who is excellent. And so what I think Paul is encouraging all of us here is to pursue that. To pursue what is excellent, and that is Christ, and that is God. So here, as humans on this earth, we are to be driving after it. It's a continual pursuit. And so that's what I mean by excellence this morning. Aristotle said that we are, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence is not an act, it's a habit. And so my contention this morning is that as Christians... We should be in the habit of pursuing excellence. So with that in mind, we're going to look at these verses. But before we get there, let's just have a moment of prayer as we look into God's Word. Dear Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would help us understand this text, that you would help us apply this text, that your words would ring true this morning in our hearts and in our lives. We pray you bless us in our time together here. In your excellent name we pray. Amen. So as we get into the text this morning, I think the first thing I see here with Paul's prayer is that he's, he's praying that our love would be excellent. Verse 9 again, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. So excellent love abounds more and more. This is an important concept. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers. He knows they have love. He's not saying, well, you just need to go get love. He's like, no, you, you probably do have love. You should have the love of Christ and the love of God and the love for the brethren in your life. But what I want you to do and my prayer for you is that you would have love that abounds more and more. It should be continual. It should be an overflowing love that spills out of you. That's my prayer for you, Church of Philippi and in our day, for all believers, that our love would abound more and more. I think Paul understands that our tendency is towards laziness in this area, especially of love. Laziness is not excellent. He, he encourages us. We need to more and more love. Um, 
sometimes we may fall into this trap of, you know, I love that one time. Isn't that good enough? I went to church last week. Do I really need to go this week? I loved my neighbor a couple of months ago. Do I really need to love them today? That kind of thinking is dangerous. I think of an example of a, a married couple, right? Married couple, they're having a little little bit of an issue, right? She feels undervalued. Um, he feels like she's just nagging. Uh, she feels that his love is fading. He feels like she's just being overly needy, right? So one day the the woman just kind of had enough and looks at her husband and, and says, you know, I'm not sure you even love me anymore. And the husband just looks and replies and says, honey, I said I loved you the day we got married, and I'll, if it ever changes, I'll let you know. Right? I, I don't know about your house, but that's not going to really work in mine. Right? And, and if it's not going to work in my house as husband and, and wife, it, it really shouldn't be that way with Christians either. We shouldn't be able to say, oh, yeah, Jesus, I loved you that one time. I said that prayer once. Isn't, isn't that good? No, it's a continual, it's an overflowing, it's it's more and more. We keep on loving in order to follow the example of Christ because Christ's love is eternal. Christ's love is overflowing. Christ's love is infinite. That's the kind of love that we ought to be pursuing. So excellent love abounds more and more. Excellent love requires knowledge. The verse goes on, with knowledge. And this word knowledge, it's epinosis. It's talking about a spiritual knowledge with, with the idea of applied knowledge to experience, to our Christian life. It speaks that a love that is growing and maturing is a love that's based on truth. For the Christian, our love and our concept of love isn't defined by what's out there. It isn't defined by culture. It isn't defined by subjective feelings. It's defined by the Word of God. It's defined by the person of Jesus Christ. We see Scripture lay out love in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. This is Christian love. We see love embodied all throughout Scripture, none better than the person of Jesus Christ as he goes to the cross for us. This is the kind of love with knowledge that Paul is talking about. But then he also says that excellent love requires all discernment. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. You see, this is the idea of love has limits. Love may not always be what people want. It may not always make people happy. But it will always be for their best. Discernment goes hand in hand with knowledge because we need to make decisions about what it looks like to love based on Scripture. What it looks like. Um, We may need to say no. We may, may need to ask questions. We may need to evaluate um, actions, situations to determine what love really looks like. 
think there's many Christians out there that just say, well, all we have to do is focus on love, and love is out there, and it's just accepting, and we can't reject anything. And the problem is that's not the biblical concept of love that we see all throughout Scripture. Paul's prayer is that we have a deep, abounding, excellent love, and it functions through the application of knowledge and discernment. And what Paul's starting to do is kind of building a staircase, and he's building one truth upon the other. And he says it starts with love abounding more and more, and the love that abounds more than more, it brings knowledge and it brings discernment. And then he says this excellent love gives way to excellent choices. Second thing Paul prays for here is that our choices would be excellent. Verse 10 says, so that you may approve what is excellent. You see, excellent choices is based on what is best. To approve what is excellent, to test, to examine. Remember, Paul is talking to believers. Paul is writing this this letter to a church. He's not asking them to choose between good and bad or sinning and not sinning. That's kind of the elementary stuff. But he says, if you have love that's abounding more and more, you have knowledge and discernment. Now you are able to choose what's best. That's the next step in the progression. But the problem is, too many times we settle for what's good when God calls us to what's excellent. Secular author, don't know if he's a Christian or not, Jim Collins, he wrote a book, Good to Great. He says, good is the enemy of great. He goes on and says, and that's one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. We don't have great schools because we have good schools. We don't have great government principally because we have good government, maybe. Few people attain great lives in part because it is just so easy to settle for a good life. And if Jim Collins knows this and applies this to business, it's even a higher standard, I believe, when we look at the life of the Christian. Where if we're pursuing Christ who is excellent, then we shouldn't settle for what's good. We should be looking and pursuing what's excellent. You see, we know we can kind of do many things. First Corinthians, under grace, 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful. We're not bound by the law anymore. It's not just about rules. We have freedom. But he says not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. You see, we need to evaluate our lives. We need to look and see, am I settling for good? Am I just coasting here when we should be striving for what's best? I know that excellence is in view of this passage because just a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Doing something half-hearted, doing something mediocre, is not doing all to the glory of God. This is true in our lives. We have to consider our plans our jobs, our careers, our desires, where we spend our money, where we spend our time, what we decide is entertainment or not. We don't ask, is this okay for me to do? We ask, is this what's best for me? Is this what's best in the pursuit of Christ? What is my ultimate aim in doing this? 
Will this matter for eternity? That's the excellent question. This truth should also be demonstrated in the church as a whole. This is why we spend money on our building. We upgrade the carpet. We are putting in new lights currently. It's a continual process. Guess what? There's still more to be done. It's why um, when we, we're looking to hopefully hire a new children's director, maybe even this year, but we're not just going to hire someone who will do a good job. We're looking for someone that's going to be an excellent fit, who knows they serve an excellent Savior, who knows that an excellent children's ministry is a testimony to an excellent God. This is what we look for as a church. We strive for excellence with our worship team and our tech guys. Why? Not because we're being nitpicky or showy. It's because we understand that we want to lead in worship. We don't want to be a distraction. So we do things with excellence. That's why I'm not leading music this morning. We're looking for excellence. That's why I love it when Madeline sings, right? She sings with excellence. But what happens when she sings with excellence? Everyone in the room benefits. And it's all to the praise and glory of God. We strive, we should be striving to show excellent love to the visitors that come through our doors. Because it's a testimony to the excellent God that we serve. But I'm afraid we often settle for good because it's just plain easier. It's good. You know, it's it's cheaper to let the parking lot sit or the building deteriorate, you know, because, man, it's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take a lot of money to, to fix those things. And isn't it good enough? You know, it's easier. I'm so guilty of this one. So don't think that I'm not stepping my own toes here. Okay? It's, it's pretty easy to sit back in the pew and be critical and not offer your talents or your expertise. You know, it's easier to talk to the few that we do know in this room instead of reaching out and talking to someone new. You know, the good thing is we don't have to all sing like Madeline. We don't have that gifting. But you know what? When we do sing, we should sing with enthusiasm. Why? Because we're serving. We're singing to the excellent one. You know, some guys are working around the church right now, replacing all these light fixtures. Um, We might not want some of you doing some electrical work around here. You know, but, but you can set up some chairs or you can go visit someone. Or I don't know what it looks like, but what it looks like is us putting forward our best for our excellent Savior. That's our focus and that's our pursuit. We're not called to do what's easy or good or comfortable. We're called to pursue excellence. The world needs to see Christians who are pursuing Christ. The world needs to see a church that is pursuing and making the excellence of Christ known. That's our mission here. Paul goes on and talks about our excellent choices. Not only is evaluating and deciding what is best, but it also focuses on what is pure and blameless. The first word that he uses here, pure, it literally means tested by sunlight. When the Greek was translated to Latin, you have this word sincere, and there's, I don't know how much of this is folklore and how much of this is truth, but it's a pertinent and and good uh, example for us to listen to. Um, In ancient Rome, 
um, the fine pottery that was made was really kind of relatively thin. And so when they would put it in the kiln, sometimes if they weren't careful or there was a blemish in the piece of art or pot or whatever it might be, it would crack. And so if you're a less than honest businessman and you're just trying to sell your bowl or whatever it might be, you would take some hard wax, you would fill it in. And in the regular um, light, it wouldn't really notice until it's put or held up into the light. When it was held up into the light, the wax would be darker. You would see the blemishes. You would see the cracks. And because people started to catch on to this, the reputable dealers, what they would do is they would stamp their piece of art with two words, two Latin words, sin and sera, where we get our word sincere. Sin without and sear wax, without wax. You know, just like the pottery is held up before the light to see if it's to reveal the cracks or to reveal the defects, right? this is what Paul is calling us to do with our own lives. We take our lives. We take our lives and we put it in the sunlight of Scripture. We allow Scripture to shine on us so it would reveal our cracks and reveal our flaws and blemishes. Why? So that we might be pure, so that we could correct those things. None of you are perfect. I'm not perfect. We all need to do this. Our aim is to be pure. Then he goes on and says, talks about being blameless, and this idea is about stumbling. But not only just stumbling into sin, I think it's talking about causing others to sin. So he's focused on pure, our own inner self. And we need to analyze and, and let the light of Scripture shine on us. But then when it comes to others, we need to make sure that we're not causing others to stumble or we're not causing others to sin. See, choosing what is best not only benefits us, but it benefits those who are around us. The last thing to tell us here about excellent choices is that they have the return of Christ in view. The end of verse 10 says, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul's reminding us here, this idea of pursuit of excellence is not about our superiority. It's not about looking good, our reputation, but it's, re- it's knowing that Christ is coming back. It's knowing who we're serving and why we're serving him, that Christ is expecting our love, our insight into decisions we make. His desire is excellence until he returns we know he's coming back first corinthians 4 or 5 therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the lord comes who will bring to light these things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart that each one will receive his commendation from god jesus is coming back and we're going to have to give an answer an account to the things we did and the things we say if we're following paul's prayer here We'll have nothing to be ashamed about. We may not have done everything perfect, but we'll say, my eye was on you. I was pursuing excellence. I was focused on what really matters. And we do that by remembering who we're serving and why we're serving. So he's building this staircase that our love would be excellent, that we have knowledge and discernment so that our choices would be excellent, so that we live lives that were pure and blameless, and then he tells us that our fruit will be excellence. Verse 11 says, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He says, Excellent fruit results, or is, righteousness. 
This is the culmination of the prayer. You do, you follow this. My prayer is that this happens in your life and the result is your life being filled with the fruit of righteousness. What's the fruit of righteousness? I think it's singular here because it's referring to the fruit of the Spirit. Right? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You see, love with knowledge and discernment it helps us choose what is excellent. As we choose what is excellent, it results in a pure and blameless life before Christ that enables us to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. This is what we ought to be characterized by. But unfortunately, instead of having the reputation of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, we see a society that looks at Christians and calls them hypocrites and judgmental and angry and unloving. Why is that? I think they're stuck on that first step. They don't really understand Christ's love. They don't have a biblical concept of love. And since they didn't get the first stage right, there's no hope of getting through the progression. So you're looking at a life filled with righteousness. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, there's not much we can do to fix the reputation of Christianity in the world. Not really much you can do to the person sitting next to you. You know what we can do? Let's look inwardly. Let's look at our own lives. Let's say, you know what? I am going to pursue excellence. It begins with love and it results in righteousness. But here's the thing. You really can't do it. You can't do it by yourself. You weren't created to do it by yourself. If you try to obtain a righteousness of your own doing, you will fail every time. The most important phrase here in these verses and the most significant concept probably in all of Scripture, is that excellent fruit is only possible through Jesus Christ. We're filled with the fruit of righteousness. That comes through Jesus Christ. How do we do that? What does it mean to have righteousness through Jesus Christ? Jesus tells us in John 15, Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Want to live a life filled with righteousness? Place your faith in Christ. And place your faith in Christ and then put everything you have under Him. Abide in Christ. Abide in His truth. Abide by His love and in His Word. Let's back down the staircase. The result? Filled with righteousness. How do we get there? We live pure and blameless lives. How we choose what is excellence. How we are given knowledge and discernment. Where? Through love abounding more and more. And this is an important thing to grasp. So when Paul begins, 
And he says, and this is my prayer for you, that your love would abound more and more. I don't think he's just talking about us loving our neighbor out of our own thing here. Knowing that the end only comes through Jesus, that's where the beginning starts. The love that should be abounding more and more is the love of Christ in our lives. It's the love of God in us. It's as we understand the love of God, we push it out. We receive the love from God, we push it out. This is the love that transforms. The love of God, not the love of man. It's the love of God in our hearts that abounds more and more, that leads to knowledge and discernment, that leads to good decisions, that get us from good to best and excellent, that leads to a pure and blameless life, that leads to being filled with righteousness. Why? Because it starts with God and it ends with God and it's all about Jesus. I know this is true because you keep going in John 15. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you haven't heard it before and you're here today, Jesus loves you. It's the biggest, most important message you can hear. Jesus loves you. Abide in his love. Trust in his word. Fall at his feet. Accept his grace. Abide in Christ. Sit in it. Soak in it. Cherish it. Know it. Own it. Speak it. Shout it. Sing it. More and more and more. That leads to a life filled with the fruit of righteousness. Only possible through Jesus Christ. But excellent fruit is for or to the glory and praise of God. It starts with God. It ends with God. I'm not much of a history guy. Definitely not much of an art guy. Um, but I'm told even if you are a art history buff, you might not know the name Bertoldo de Giovanni. But you might know the names Donatello and Michelangelo. Well, this guy, Bertoldo, if either as the artist or the Ninja Turtles, okay, based on artist. Okay? Bertoldo de Giovanni, where does he come in? He was a student of Donatello. Donatello, I'm told, was probably the greatest sculptor of his time. Giovanni grew up learning from Donatello, but Giovanni became the teacher of Michelangelo. Michelangelo came to Giovanni at only age 14. And at age 14, Giovanni saw, this kid's got talent. He's going to be famous. But I think he also recognized that it was pretty easy for people who are enormously gifted to just coast by rather than to grow and to excel. And so he kept pressuring Michelangelo to strive for excellence, to, to push and take his art seriously, to not coast, try hard. One day he came into his art shop studio, sees Michelangelo there playing around with a sculpture, and he's like, this is so beneath Michelangelo's talent. So he picks up a hammer, he walks over to Michelangelo, and bam! smashes the sculpture into a bunch of tiny little pieces. And he looks at Michelangelo and he says, Michelangelo, talent is cheap. Dedication is costly. You see, Paul's prayer is for excellence. 
But it's not going to come free or easy. For the Christian, the call to excellence is actually a call to die. To die to self. To allow Christ to live in us. It may mean that we're going to have to reorder some priorities. It may mean that we're going to have to make some new commitments. Maybe we're going to have to give up some good things to make room for best things. It will mean you're going to need to put others before yourself. That you're going to need to let the Holy Spirit guide your thoughts and guide your actions. Your reputation may change. You may have to step out and take some risks. It's definitely going to push you out of your comfort zone. It's definitely going to require your time, your talents, your gifts, your abilities. It's going to take your investment. But the return is incomparable. It's a life filled with the fruit of righteousness. A life marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So Jesus says in John 15 again, verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So let's love more and more so that we can improve what is excellent, that we may be filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of our excellent God. There's no better way to live. Let's pray. Dear, we do come before you knowing that you are excellent and we are not. We are thankful that we don't have to be, that we are flawed, that we have imperfections, but that we can have your righteousness because you loved us, because you came to die for us. I pray we know those truths, that we would experience those truths, that it wouldn't just be an intellectual head knowledge or exercise, but that we would take it and apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray we allow you to make changes in our life, that you allow us to see and identify the things that are bad or good or better or best, and that we would pursue excellence, that we would give our lives to you, that you will lead us each step of the way. We pray all these things in your excellent name. Amen.